Welcome to our Glendale Bible study. Uh, today we are going to continue in chapter 13 and actually rather than continue, a better way to describe our lesson to today is more of a review and basically what we're going to do is revisit uh, revisit the bottom portion of chapter 13 and what I want to do is carry over some of the main thoughts from um, that we've already discussed. We want to carry them over, enlarging on them to some degree in order to set the context for some of the details that we will focus on uh, perhaps next week and more specifically uh, the imagery of the mark of the beast and all of that. So I want to set a broader context for that so that, um, and in, in order to do so, we want to tie together some of the things that we've already looked at from uh, both the top and the bottom portion of chapter 13. So there are eight things that we will uh, look at today. The first one, uh, to revisit a summary of the first beast who rises from the sea. We've touched on this over the last two weeks that the focal point of the functioning of the first beast is largely geopolitical slash military. In other words, the power and the authority of the beast, the first beast, is largely in political terms or what we would say national terms. So it's either the portrayal of a strong political personality or the raising of a geopolitical entity and defining that as ultimate power and authority. And consequently, by being over the government, then that elevates the person uh, that is, you know, along with the state. And we've also noted that um, this resonates in a particular way during the first century because of the cult of, of um, or of emperor worship that was associated with Rome. And it wasn't just Rome, it was other um, national uh, or geopolitical entities as well. We reference from the Old Testament in Egypt, the Pharaoh was considered as divine. So this raising the state and the head of state to religious stature as being the primary source of identity and power, uh, that that is really uh, the, the primary function of the first beast. So to raise himself or the nation state to that exalted position. The second thing that we focused on or that we, we have addressed in the last couple of weeks is that this raising of uh, political power, military power, and this raising of political personalities is grounded in the presupposition that someone other than the Christian God is the ground and the grid of the, for defining human pursuits and human purpose. Uh, so whether it's the state that gives you your purpose, whether it's brute power that gives you your purpose, the whole point of elevating political power or personality to the status that's portrayed by the first beast is to get its citizens to look to the state or the person as the definer 
of human purpose and therefore the ground of all human pursuits. And we've mentioned this throughout our studies that you see this sort of statism uh, throughout various points of human history, whether it's Nazi Germany, whether it's uh, the Roman Empire, and, and just other nations where the idea of, of um, human identity is so tied in, even portions of uh, uh, Russia's past with the Soviet Union, that the state is what gives you authenticity. The state is what gives you purpose. The state uh, is what gives you uh, a meaning for, for, for living. So the activities of the first beast are political and militaristic because it's grounded in the assumption that these vehicles, be it military or politics or the state, is the ground and grid for defining human pursuits and human purpose. And it's interesting, by the way, to read various um, science fiction writers, George Orwell comes to mind, uh, that, that talks about that sort of dystopia where purpose and identity is tied to your position, your privileges, your power, and any host of things. And even a, on a smaller scale, and it's not as absolute, but that's the really uh, behind David Zaw's book, which I've recommended to many, uh, Seculosity. And the idea that uh, Zaw works from in his book is uh, many people have talked about the secularizing of this generation and the oncoming generation where they are turning away from religion. So a lot of surveys, they ask what your re re religious affiliation is. There's an increasing number of people who are saying none, no religious affiliation. But the point that Zaw makes in his book is that people are seeking purpose and identity, what used to be sought in religion, they're seeking it in other things. And that's what he calls seculosity. And that's everything from uh, careers to possessions and any number of, of pursuits, even health, uh, just you know, being the healthiest person. And, and all of these things are ways of defining one's purpose and therefore directing one's pursuits away from what is revealed as our purpose and, and our pursuits according to the word of God. So that's this, this uh, first beast is really kind of feeding into that. Here's the third thing. What animates the functioning of the first beast is the intentional aim of the dragon slash Satan. And I know I'm sounding like a broken record here, but we've made the point that when the first beast draws attention and calls for the worship of the dragon, that does not mean intentional devil worship. The whole purpose of Satan is to continue his rebellion against God's authority. And so one of the ways in which he's done it, and we saw that in the previous chapter with the angels, the, the battle in heaven, that there were those who sided with the rebellion of the dragon or of Satan against the authority of God. So therefore, what animates the first beast to do what he does is the, in, the animation or the intentional aim of Satan 
to rebel against the Christian God by deceiving God's image bearers to pursue and define human purpose according to anything other than the will of God. So Satan is not just trying to get people to join witch covens or anything like that, but anything that diverts our attention or diverts our devotion away from the will of God. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, a number of years ago, raised the question, what would a town that's oper or what would a town that's governed by Satan look like? What would it look like? And of course, Barnhouse was popular in the 50s and early 60s. And so he said it would look like, um, he said uh, a, a town ruled and governed by Satan would be surprising. He says it would have, um, all of the bars would be closed and the liquor stores would be closed on Sunday. He said all of the, the neighborhoods would be well kept. Uh, the, the lawns would be finely manicured. Uh, the bars and liquor stores closed on Sunday and the churches would be full and all the children would be well behaved and the churches would be full as a preacher got up to preach anything other than Christ. So there would be that, that, that transcendence, that sense of, of, of otherness. There would be politeness, perhaps. Uh, there would be, it wouldn't necessarily be as immoral as we think it would be. His point is that Satan, all Satan wants to do, whether you do it with the bottle or whether you do it with religion, he wants to divert human beings, the image bearers of God, to cause them to uh, see their purpose, define their purpose and their, uh, their pursuits according to anything other than the will of God. A few weeks ago, we referenced um, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and Bishop Fulton J. Sheen identifies the three temptations, uh, the threefold temptation of Satan as deviations from the cross. So, yeah, go ahead, throw yourself down from this tall building, uh, turn, turn the bread, uh, the stone into bread, do anything other than go to the cross. So what Satan is, is doing through the first beast is causing fallen humanity to define their pursuits and their purpose according to something other than the will of God. Here's the fourth thing. Since fallen humanity in general maintains inclination towards an inclination towards transcendence. Now, what I mean by this is that in our fallen nature, even though we're fallen and we are um, separated from God by nature, we, we have not lost in general a sense of otherness a sense that there that life is more than just my personal experience, that there is something spiritual, there is a connection. Paul addresses this in Romans, where he says that even though God was, uh, was the, the presence of God and the power of God is manifest in creation, that man worshiped the creature rather than the creator. This is what we call natural religion. 
So even though we are fallen in general, there are always going to be those who claim to not believe in anything, but that's another argument altogether. But in the fall, humanity still, uh, still maintains an inclination towards transcendence. And because we still have an inclination towards the other, that which is what I would call metaphysical, that which is that that which connects us or defines us as more than just animals. We are therefore susceptible to spiritual forces or persons as the guide and giver of human ultimacy. Because we still have a sense that there is something bigger than us, we are susceptible to spiritual forces, and by spiritual forces, I mean just our impulses, that there is something bigger than me, and we are, um, and, and, or even the, the principle of karma, that there's, there's, there are spiritual laws and spiritual forces at work. You don't have to be Christian to, to use that kind of language. In fact, I would argue that that kind of language is used mostly and especially as disconnected from the religion of uh, the Christian religion and disconnected from the Bible, that kind of stuff is, is just, it, 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 you know, it's, it's throughout human history. As early as the Old Testament, you find all of these, the soothsayers, you have the sorcerers, because even in our fallen status, we know intuitively that there is something that is defining our physical existence beyond our physical comprehension. So we are prone towards that which is spiritual, and because we're prone towards that which is spiritual, we're susceptible to any spiritual force, any, whether it's of whatever sort, uh, or even a person that claim to be a guide towards our road towards ultimacy or someone that will give us ultimacy. That's what we are prone towards. And that's really what that first beast plays into. Plays into um, power of the state, power of the military, and finding your purpose within that state. And so therefore you are defined by those things that give life to the state. And that's just a simplistic expression of it. We'll see how it plays out even more uh, in, a, in a more pronounced way. But here's the fifth thing. Whereas the first beast is political slash militaristic in its functions, the second beast is spiritual, attempting to validate the first beast as the definer of human ultimacy and the object of human adoration, devotion, and worship. So the first beast tries to define ultimacy in temporal terms. The second beast gives spiritual validation to the ultimate claims of the first beast so that the first beast becomes the object of worship and therefore the definer of human ultimacy and purpose 
and also the object of human adoration, devotion, and worship. Which brings us to a sixth thing. The spiritual character and function of the second beast as inspired by the dragon manifests itself not in a single false religion but in the conglomeration of uh, religion and spirituality apart from the God of the Bible or the God of the Christian religion and what he has revealed in his word and what he has fulfilled in his son. So let me repeat that, that the second, uh, the spiritual character and function of the second beast, as it is inspired by the dragon, and remember the dragon is bent on an agenda to subvert the ultimate authority of God. That's what the dragon wants. And so the second beast is inspired by the dragon and he does it in spiritual terms. But that does not mean it will be a, it will manifest itself in a single false religion. So it's not just one false religion that he's going to promote, but rather it is the conglomeration of all religions and all spiritual expressions that are apart from and other than what the God of the Christian religion has revealed in his word and fulfilled in his son. So we're not just looking for a false religion. And one of the reasons I wanted to uh, to kind of walk through these issues before we get into the mark of the beast is because many people are just looking for a single thing as it, but it's much more subtle than that. Any religion and any defining of spiritual of, of spirituality apart from God and apart from what he's revealed in his word and apart from what he's fulfilled in son is part of the false religion of the second beast. Which brings us to a seventh thing. Therefore, the false doctrine and false religion of the second beast falls into one of two camps. And there are many variations within those two camps. So again, we're not trying to be oversimplistic, but I want to give a broad sweep and categories by which we can we can see the variation. So here are the two camps. The first camp is this, a religion and a spirituality that ascribes godness to any other deity other than the Christian God. To ascribe godness to any other being than the Christian God. Now, this could be man-made deities. You have the whole system of Baal, Baal worship in the Old Testament. Uh, that was Babylonian in, in, in character. You had all of the gods. There were 60-some-odd gods in Egypt. 
So there are a, a plethora of gods. You know Greek mythology, Zeus, and, and all of these other. There, there, there are, so, so this false religion is one, one manifestation of the false religion of the second beast is any religion or spirituality that ascribes godness to any other deity other than the Christian God. So it could be man-made deities or it could be man himself. So therefore, in this camp, not only will you have all of the polytheism of, of ancient pagans, but you also have atheists. They're all in the same camp. Anyone, uh, self-fulfillment religions, transcendental religions, all of these, they, they are all in the same camp. So again, to go back to the, the original point, that the false doctrine and the false religion of the second beast falls into one of two camps, and there are multiple variations in each camp. The first camp is to ascribe deity to any other thing or being other than the Christian God. Here's the second camp. On the other hand, the false doctrine and the false religion of the second beast also consists of wrong conceptions of the Christian God and the Christian Bible. So whereas the first camp is defining spirituality or, or excuse me, ascribing deity to someone other than God, the, the, the God of the Christian religion. But in this other camp, there is lip service to the God of the Bible. And not only does it include a wrong conception of the Christian God, but it also is based on wrong conception of the word of God, what it means. And it also includes a misconception about the kingdom of God. I'll just pause there for a moment. I want to flesh out the thought a little more thoroughly. But the point is, and, and Jesus addresses this a number of times in his earthly ministry, another way in which the second beast will deceive the people and divert their attention from the true and living God, one way is with no Bible and with saying that anything else can be God. But another way is to take the Bible and to use the name of God, but come away with something other than that which was passed on by the apostles. An example of this is when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, and one of his warnings and his concerns, I, in fact, I'll just turn to it in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. And, but, but one of the things that Paul is concerned about, one of the reasons that he has been so particular in terms of what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And I, I want to read uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's see, is it? 
yeah, chapter 11. And in chapter 11, here's what Paul says. And I want to pick up in verse, let's see, verse 3. I'll pick up in verse 3. Well, in fact, I'll just read from verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a divine or as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, uh, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere devotion and uh, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus other than the one that we have proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you receive, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, that you would put up with it readily enough. So what Paul is saying is that He's not just warning against people who say, oh, the Bible is foolish, you know, the Bible is man-made. That's, that's one argument that we will always have to contend with. But Paul is concerned with the Corinthians that someone would come along with an open Bible and use the name of God and claim the name of Jesus and claim the Holy Spirit, but come away with different things than what has been delivered to them uh, by himself, which is the faith that was once delivered to all of the saints. So in this second camp, the second beast will use the Bible. He will use individuals to speak from the Bible and claim things that might even be written in the Bible, but redefine it in a way that, that is contrary to what is healthy or orthodox apostolic Christianity. So uh, now with this, it includes misconceptions, as we said, not only about the nature of God, whether it's the Trinity or um, the deity of Christ. It will, it will redefine God himself, the Bible itself, or even the kingdom of God. And as such, it will define human history in ways that are inconsistent with what we hold to be uh, the Christian understanding of history. Now, this is what Jesus confronts continually throughout the course of his earthly ministry. One place in particular that I want to call attention to where he addresses this is in uh, Luke chapter 19. And this is following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, it's worth noting that on the road to Jerusalem, that many of the people were crying out hosannas because they thought, they acknowledged, and, and by the way, that wasn't just a, a, a term. That, that is a reflection of their messianic hope and expectation gleaned from the Old Testament. So when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, they are crying out hosanna, blessed is he who comes uh, in the name of, of David. In fact, there's one statement where it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory to the highest. That's what they were saying when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But in verses 41 through 48, once you have all of the outcry of the people expecting him and what their expectations were, 
that Jesus was going into Jerusalem to reestablish the throne of David. And not only would that mean the overthrow of Herod, but it would also mean a rebellion against the Roman Empire to establish national Israel once again to its glory that it experienced before the exile. That's what their expectations were. So look at what happens in verses 41 through 48. Luke 19, verses 41 through 48. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, what Jesus is doing is anticipating and actually prophesying about the overthrow of physical Jerusalem that would eventually come. And his point is that they thought the that physical Jerusalem is what gave them peace because they were anticipating the reestablishment of national Israel. So Jesus says, you don't even know what makes for your peace. And he weeps for them because even though they have the language from the scriptures of the Messiah and, you know, the, the king, they, they have the language but they, they have a misconception both about what the prophets say about the Messiah and a misconception about the nature of the kingdom of God. But the next thing that Jesus does, so he weeps because the people in general who are crying Hosanna don't really understand the nature of this aspect of the king or the kingdom. But here's the second thing, picking up in verse 45. Um, he says, and, and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves and robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his word. This is an illustration of how the second beast works in a religious manner. This is just one example. I wouldn't say that the misguided notions of the king and the kingdom that's expressed by the multitude is solely the result of the false teaching that was taking place in the temple, but it was a contributing factor. One of the reasons the people were not able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, even in his suffering, is because they are a product of the teaching that they have been subject, uh, subjected to in the temple. And part of that teaching was the, the way in which you gain a right standing with God is through law keeping. So they didn't get it. So I think that again, part of, in this second camp, in the first camp of the false teaching of uh, the, the second beast, 
it consists of ascribing deity to anything other than God. And that opens the door for man, beast, stars, and everything else. But the, the second camp of his influence is to take what is revealed by God and take even the God language and pour different meanings into it. It is worth noting that Joel Osteen begins every telecast with an open Bible. But the stuff that he says from that Bible are inconsistent with the historic Christian faith. I once commented, uh, someone was asking about, you know, do we need uh, a, a modern reformation? And my answer was, yes, we are in need of a new reformation. But I said, the difference is this. In the first reformation, it coincided with making the Bible available to average citizens. Because the average citizen, A, did not have a Bible. The average worshiper did not have a Bible. And the Bible was not made available in the vernacular or language of the common people. So among the many things that Luther was, was, was famous for and is celebrated for in church history, not just recovering the doctrine of justification, but Luther translated the Bible into German, which was the language, he was a German. So he translated the scriptures into the language of the people. And one of the reasons that the Reformation was able to spread right away or as fast as it did is because in conjunction with all of these religious things that were taking place, you had the development of the movable printing press. So when Luther published his 95 thesis, others were able to take it and publish it and make it known and distribute it among the people. Likewise, they translated the scriptures and put the scriptures into the hands of the people and now in the language of the people. So my comment was this. The first Reformation included putting the Bible in the hands of the people. Whatever Reformation is to take place in this generation or somewhere in the future, it will come at a time when the Bible is already in the hands of people and we will have to reteach people really how to read and understand the, the gospel from the Bible. So it's with with, with uh, the first Reformation, they didn't have Bibles, and the Bibles were part of the re reforming process. But I think the next, re the next Reformation is now that the Bible is in the hands of the average parishioner, how do we read it through a Christ-centered uh, Christ perspective, or what we call the meta-narrative? Because if we don't do it in that way, what we end up is what, uh, what we end up seeing is the two things that we just looked at. With Paul, with the Corinthians, where someone will proclaim from an open Bible another manifestation of Jesus or defining Jesus along a different line. Uh, he was just a good teacher. He was a motivator. He was, he was whatever other than the Lamb of God. We will see him as maybe flawed. We will see him, there are so many different ways that you can read into the Jesus narrative if you do not see Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, as the fulfillment of everything that God has promised towards our salvation. Or as in the case of Jesus in Luke 19, he weeps over the city because the people 
with open Bibles were looking to a physical structure, the temple, and a physical geopolitical entity and confusing that with the kingdom of God. That brings us to the eighth and final thing, and that is the signs and wonders that are referenced in verses 13 and 14 of, of uh, Revelation 13 in conjunction with the second beast is allowed by God because those who are deceived by these signs and wonders have rejected the truth of the gospel. We've seen that rejection already with the message of the witnesses. We've seen it uh, variously throughout um, the different places where we've referenced the ministry of the word. But I want to return to something that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and particularly in verses 9 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 9 through 12 because I think that's a good summary of the deception uh, of, of lying signs and wonders uh, that, that Paul references in conjunction with the man of lawlessness. So uh, 2 Thessalonians, beginning with verse 9, um, yeah, beginning with verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, the dragon, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I have long given up trying to uh, declare that the signs and wonders, ministries that people talk about, I don't even determine whether or not what they do is true, whether it's a, it's a hoax or if that's really a miracle. Did that person really have only one leg and you made a second leg appear? Did you? Let's just say it really happened. That doesn't make your message true. That's the point. And so it's, it's interesting, I, I was just watching on television the other day, and I saw a minister, and I guess it was blessing time, so he was walking around, uh, left the podium, and he's walking to the people in the front row, and he's putting his hands on them, and some were just falling, and then afterwards, uh, they were discussing it, and here's what one of the brothers said. He says, that brother, that my brother, was the power of the Holy Spirit. That was God. And I listen to the message, and I say that's baloney. Let's say the people really did fall. Maybe you really, maybe they weren't, they didn't just go along with it because that was what they were supposed to do. Let's just say you actually slayed them. It doesn't make your message right. Brothers and sisters, if a person is able to perform signs and wonders, we are all, listen, I'm a fan of magic. We are all. We all want a good show, but the optics of the show is not the end of it. If the end of it diminishes to in any degree, the message that God has revealed in the Bible about his son, then it's a false message 
And even if you were to go to a cemetery and bring a dead person back to life, I'm not going to say that it wasn't real. Let's say it's, it's real. Uh, we, we know that, that the Lord actually allowed the witch of Endor to bring back to life so that he could confront uh, uh, Samuel or Saul. He brought back Samuel, the spirit of Samuel. But it doesn't make it any less witchcraft. The point that we want to make is that the working of the first and the second beast accomplish the will and the intention of the dragon that animates them, which is to divert our submission to the will of God and rebel against his authority. And there are no amount of miracles that can change it. There is no nation state that will obscure what God has revealed. And the false religion of the second beast is to get us to look away from the finished work of Christ and therefore define our purpose and to define human history as God, as, as under the control, the sovereign control of Almighty God and to find our ultimacy in him, regardless of what we experience horizontally. That's what the dragon wants. And he uses the two beasts in all of their, the variations of their message to get us to look away from the word of God, the written word and the word made flesh. I can't help but think of the great statement in the book of Hebrews. And that's really what it comes down to. At this point of human history and redemptive history and until the Lord returns, no matter what we experience, our highs and our lows, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And to know that he who is the author and finisher of our faith is the man that God has raised from the dead and by which the whole world will be judged. Next week, we will look more thoroughly into the mark of the beast and talk about the significance of that symbolism and what it means as well as what it doesn't mean as best we can. But we pray that uh, these words would resonate with you. Go back and look at what we laid out from the first part of, of the chapter um, well, uh, the last two weeks, the first five verses and then from uh, the bottom of the verse as well. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have blessed us to see. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that you are the sovereign Lord and our Savior is the one who sits as the ruler over the kings of the earth. We pray, Father, that with all of the distractions around us and even within us, that we would not fail to look to you and to look to our Savior, that we would not seek ultimacy in the kingdoms of men, but we would seek ultimacy in the one who was wounded for our transgressions and who was bruised for our iniquity and who was raised for our justification. 
thank you for the reminder that he rules all things and there is nothing that takes place within your creation that is outside of your power or beyond your will. We pray that we have been clear and careful in the handling of the things that we have addressed and we trust that you by your spirit would give your people the ability to comprehend these things and to integrate them into all of our thinking and all of our doing. We thank you for the sufficiency of your grace in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.